We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements and how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm Rebecca Burnt. And I'm Chelsea McMillan. And we're spiritual directors exploring the intersection of spirituality and social transformation. So Chelsea, uh, it's been a little while since we've recorded. We took a break over the winter holidays. I think we were both feeling a little burned out. Um, I'm coming back with definitely some more energy um, and excitement about some of the upcoming guests we have. How are you doing? I'm feeling the same. I, uh, I've i really enjoyed our time off and um, and have really felt more connected to sort of this winter solstice time than I usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been like resting a lot and I've been taking hot baths and I've been meditating more. I've been trying to go within more and sort of um, listen to the cycle of the earth, at least for mm-hmm. those of us in the Northern Hemisphere here. So um, it's hard. It's hard to do in this culture that like doesn't want us to to slow down and stop being productive you know yeah yeah for so, sure yeah I've been trying to like listen to my body awesome awesome those are such important things to do it kind of reminds me of um what one of our earlier guests said um Teresa Pasquale Mateus um talked about rhythm over time when she talked about POC-centered contemplative spirituality, and you just went to her conference. Yeah. How was that? Yeah, actually, that was really great. Um, So just for those of you who haven't heard that episode or don't remember, she told us about the Mystic Soul Project, which is a project that's focused on people of color-centered spirituality and activism, and specifically people of color-centered contemplative spirituality and activism. And um, they had a big conference which had like I think 400 people so it was pretty big this this past weekend that I went to in Chicago. That's great for a first time. Totally totally Um, and there were some other people of our previous guests like Yardina Peacock and Kate Werning were both there and Margaret Johnson who have all been on the show Um, so yeah it was a really really great experience Um, one of the things that I was so struck by was that um It was a people of color-centered space. There were a lot of white people there. It was almost all people of color, presenters and um, speakers and all of that. But it just felt like a welcoming space for everybody. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. my experience of it. Um, And what I loved about it was they really were looking for what seemed to me a more creative expression of what contemplative spirituality Mm -hmm. is. One of the things that Teresa said was that – She's like, contemplative practice is not just sitting in silent mm-hmm. meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that traditionally, um, indigenous communities and um, communities of people of color have had contemplative practices that a lot of times are more about embodiment and sort of like joyful expression of embodiment and um, that are more creative in a lot of ways. And so mm-hmm. since there just was so much space for like a really creative sort of juicy approach to spirituality that was really wonderful to see. There was a lot of art. There were a lot of embodied practices. Um, 
They had a healing salon with like herbalists and energy workers and mm. people who read tarot and things like that. You know, they had an herbalism that was that was actually people of color only workshops because they had some spaces that were for people of color only. But they had like an ma- making an herbal potion kind of um, workshop, and there were yeah, there was storytelling. It was a really beautiful space to be in. Mm. So that was super fun. I met some cool people that hopefully we will be interviewing for the podcast in upcoming weeks and months. Awesome. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And it, it put me of mind of today's topic, which mm-hmm. is all about creativity mm-hmm. and spirituality and how that relates to social change. Yeah. I mean, what I was going to say was like, 400 people showing up for the Mystic Soul Conference just really speaks to a hunger for this. And and I think a hunger in all communities. And I think that's what we'll talk about with Theopoetics today, which is like people who – and it's funny because that term has actually been around for like over 50 years now. (laughs) I feel like it's been like this hidden secret um, but it's it's kind of this idea of saying that the ways in which we experience the divine, like mm-hmm. um, music and dance and art and some of these more embodied um, practices are like yeah. just as valid theologies almost as like all these things written down by a bunch of old white guys in like dusty libraries, you know, right, on some right. university campus. Totally. Yeah. So – um, I mean, we have an interview today with your friend Khaled, Khaled mm-hmm. Keith Perry and Lakeisha Lockhart, who both come from the arts, religion, culture, arts, religion, Yeah. Yeah. That's the, just the name of it, which is always a little bit hard for me to say, but yeah. <laughs> um, and they call it ARC, A-R-C, mm-hmm. ARC. Um, and they talk about theopoetics there and, and they have a conference coming up as well. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Khaled is someone I've just known kind of just through, Um, some of the progressive spiritual scenes that I've been a part of for the last 10 years. And so um, he had been listening to the podcast and reached out to us about um, collaborating a little bit um, because they have this organization where they're really focused on how do we talk about spirituality in a creative, poetic, artistic, Mm -hmm. embodied way. And they are kind of, um, from my understanding, academics for the most part that started it but they're really looking to branch out and they don't they don't want to stay in they don't want to be locked in the academy and they Mm -hmm. don't want um, their work to be locked in the academy and they want they're really creating a space where there's room for the academics and the practitioners the artists the creators to be um, in dialogue with one another Mm -hmm. and so we are going to be interviewing them today, and we'll be telling you more about the upcoming conference in upcoming episodes, or we'll just be letting you know a little bit about it. But um, you're going to be there, Chelsea, and you're going to be yeah. doing a workshop. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited um, because for me, sacred activism is about this process of inner music. And and I use the word music because I'm a singer and, and I think a lot about um, using my voice and, and like the things going on inside of me. Um, but it's like the inner process becoming an outer thing, you know, like this personal transformation, like what's going on inside of here and how can that touch the world outside of me, you know, and that to mm-hmm. me is sacred activism. That's the creative process. That's embodied spiritual practice. 
so I'm really excited to kind of look at that intersection and um, and talk about that at the conference. I wish you could come with us, but um, I know I have a previous engagement that I was already committed to, so I can't come. But I I wish I could be there too, and it sounds like it's going to be a really awesome space. And if any of our listeners are interested, we have a coupon code for it's already not a very expensive conference to go mm-hmm. to, and it's for ten percent off registration. And you just use the code the rising. Yeah, you can go to theopoeticsconference.org or to artsreligionculture.org to register for the conference or just to find out more about it. And did we tell them when and where it is, Chelsea? Oh, yeah. It's um, in Boston, um, March 9th and 10th. And I've heard that there's going to be a really cool um, workshop or event or something, I think, the night before with a collective from D.C. It's like an artistic collective, um, artistic activist collective. So, Yeah, uh, the sanctuaries. Yeah. yeah, exciting stuff. So here's our interview with Khaled Keefe Perry and Lakeisha Lockhart. Khaled Keefe Perry is a proud father and husband. He is a member of the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, and travels in the ministry serving within and beyond that denomination. He is an organizational consultant, retreat leader, and teacher of discernment, deeply influenced by both Quakerism and Ignatian spirituality. He is the author of Way to Water, a Theopoetics Primer, has been a public school teacher, is a performer and coach of improv theater, and was the co-founder of a community theater in Rochester, New York. Academically, his work is at the intersection of public theology with creative practices and their connection to education and spiritual formation. Organizationally, he focuses on helping groups clarify their goals and make sure that their commitments to justice and equity become more than just aspirations and good intentions. And Lakeisha Lockhart is a gregarious and playful scholar activist. She is currently a doctoral candidate at Boston College in Theology and Education, researching play as a cultural signification for women of color, which can provide a space for agency and authenticity for these women, both in the pulpit and the academy. She is an assistant professor of practical theology and director of Stream Youth Theology Institute at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University. She not only believes in the power of play and embodiment in theology, but she actively advocates for the importance of the body as a locus of doing theology. She believes that doing theology from and through the body allows us to see the other as they are, not as we want them to be. Play and embodiment provide hope for theological education. She received her BA from Claflin University, MDiv from Wesley Theological Seminary, MA in Ethics and Society from Vanderbilt University, and has been a Zumba instructor since 2012. Thank you both for being with us today. We're so excited to have you here. Absolutely. Thrilled. Thanks for for having us. (laughs) Um, So to begin, we'd like to hear a little bit about the organization that you both come from, uh, ARC. Do you call it ARC or is it? ARC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ARC, (laughs) which stands for Arts, Religion, Culture. And um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about that and how you each came to this work. Oh, goodness. How how we each came to this work? Khaled. Khaled Mm -hmm. is how we all come. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but uh, I guess first is to talk a little bit um, about ARC. it's we're a collaborative community for uh, people who 
believe in doing kind of embodied work and just ways of knowing and being through artistic and spiritual practices uh, to help promote uh, a more just world where creativity and spirituality flourish and it matters and well, all people and bodies are just welcome and we don't just talk about the thing, we do the thing. Uh, and we usually have a good time doing it. So <laughs> is that about right, Khaled? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I think I think some of those kind of words in there are really key to kind of uh, both arc and how we got there. So on the one hand, um, like some people say <laughs> collaborative or you know community and it really just like a placeholder for like generic liberal values mm. um and we really really like are attentive to like trying to help people meet each other help support people's work um get people connected we you know a couple times a week i'm on the phone with someone who said hey i just found out about your stuff i didn't know such a thing exists or that there was a word for such a thing who can i talk to about x y and z so we really are trying to kind of invite people to meet one another as well as meet ideas and encourage people to kind of work together towards whatever they're doing. I mean, we kind of live at like a arc is, is a, is a crossroads for people whose interests are about the arts, imagination, religious reflection and embodiment in kind of a broad way. So not everyone agrees with what the other person is doing, but if those things matter to you, arc is a place where those conversations take place. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I've definitely been one of those people. I was like, "What? What is this word? Theopoetics? <laughs> like, tell me more. <laughs> tell me more about that." So maybe we can. Yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that word means and how that relates to arts and religion and culture. Because that's a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like you said, it's very broad. Yeah, it is. And since he wrote the book, I'm gonna let Calla take that one first. <laughs> yeah. I wrote a book. Um, <laughs> so the first thing to do is to just kind of name something that is present, at least in the Christian tradition, I actually don't know so much about other uh, religious traditions and practices, if this is true. However, there is certainly a stream of um, at least American Protestantism that's very, very suspicious of the imagination and of the arts and of body. And oftentimes that's named as like, well, that's because that stuff is how Satan can get in or something like that. I'm not very good at that language, but something something bad could happen <laughs> because you have a body and or because you imagine things. And in that kind of worldview, what you want to be doing is just reading the Bible and then reading it harder and then reading it purely. And so kind of in in a different space than that, Theopoetics says um, we are going to have a positive appreciation and concern for the ways that imagination and the arts can be part of religious reflection. And then in ARC especially, we say, especially if that kind of positive concern for aesthetics and the arts helps to build community and build community in a way that actually changes things, like actually concretely, materially. So... Um, you know, it's great to have high theory, and I really mean that, um, but but it better somehow also get yoked into um, transformation. Um, so theopoetics is kind of pays more attention to genre and method. One of the examples uh, I often give is if you hand someone, like let's say, an essay or something, and you tell them it's theology, and then you ask them, you know, um, tell me. Um, what it's about, 
what they'll try and do is they'll summarize the, the data of that essay. They'll say, oh, they make this point, they make this point, they make this point. And at the end of it, they'll kind of give you the argumentation that was in the essay. And one of the things Theopoetic says is that's well and good, you know, carry on. And um, why don't we ask the question, why is it an essay? What was the prose like? How did it feel to read it? Who made up the bibliography? Um, what does it mean that it was printed on paper and in English as opposed to sung in French or danced without words? What does it mean that it's an argument as opposed to a painting? Um, Theopoetic says that um, religious reflection um, doesn't have to be academic to be intelligent that there's multiple kinds of intelligences and academic theology is certainly uh, one way to do religious reflection. But if we say that academic theology or religious studies is the only way that intelligent people think about religion, then we have kind of gone, <laughs> we've gone off the road and, and we ought to turn back. So that's not to diminish those things. That theology is important. Academics can be great. But we don't want to say that that's the only way that people can intelligently reflect on religion and religious experience. One of the things that kind of strikes me in what you just said, you uh, you said in, in Protestant Christianity, but I think in my experience, it, it's true of a lot of um, well-established religious systems is that there's often a distrust of the imagination. And it's funny because I was just having this conversation the other day with a woman who is, um, she's a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and a psychologist and also a member of this uh, community of intuitives that I'm part of. And her, she said, you know, of course, hierarchical and established religions are, always have some suspicion of the imagination because it's something that they can't control. You know, and once you start to allow that space for the imagination, um, you allow people to begin to have their own direct experiences with the divine in a way that doesn't always fit into into theological systems. Yeah, I was going to say I completely agree. And I, for me personally, I would even throw bodies in mm. into that into that uh, into that loop there. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. Totally. Can you tell us more about that? Like maybe more about what your own experiences that experiences have been that brought you to this work and, and specifically to your focus on the imagination and bodies? Um, sure. I mean, for, for, for me, it's, um, as a, as a black woman, I've never been able to not have a body <laughs> in the world. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, even sometimes when, uh, maybe I didn't always want to, or I didn't want to have it identified or known, but it was always there. And, and even sometimes if it was, you know, being seen as an object or being seen as a criminal or dangerous or the many things that happened because my, I have a black woman's body. Um, so, so it was never a choice for me. What was a choice was to, to own it, to take it back and to see it as a beautiful, amazing thing that's made in the image and likeness of an amazing creator. And so once I kind of uh, began to see it in that way, then I was able to imagine, then I was able to do all these things. Then I was actually able to enjoy dancing and moving because I'm like, oh, my body's not a bad thing anymore. Um, you know, I don't have to deny my flesh or I don't have to, you know, think that I'm over here tempting boys or what, you, you know, whatever, what I was told as a little kid, you know, all those little things you get told. Um, but realizing that, no, there's a purpose for me and that my body matters and that no one gets to say anything or treat it any kind of way. And that's okay. And, um, and so once I did that, I was able to kind of see the beauty in, in, in living out my faith in a more embodied way. 
So for me, that's how I enter a lot of this work because I, I've never had a choice about my body, but I, I choose to own it and to love it and to live through it and with it and, and have an embodied existence. Um, and that's how I teach. That's how I work with you. <laughs> I just, it, it falls over in every other area of life. <laughs> yeah, sometimes people don't recognize that like – so there's this like technical, schmechnical academic term like imaginary um, as opposed to just like your imaginary friend. But like we have multiple imaginaries. You can think of like the word worldview, too. And the reality is that how we imagine the world is the story we tell ourselves about the structures we live in, the, the, the way that God works in the world or doesn't work in the world. However it is, we imagine those things um, actually shapes like what we do what we do with our material lives. And so one of the things I always say is when we say imagination, what we don't mean is make up or pretend. The mm -hmm. fact is you can imagine something to be the case that's totally true, right? You imagine I'm sitting in my office and you're kind of picturing that. You don't know exactly what my office looks like. You might be exactly right. And the fact is I am sitting in my office. It's not pretend. It's just we're, we're grasping at the stuff that we don't know and imagining it. And how we do that. Um, totally changes what we do in, in our lives, not just in like an ethics sense, but like, who do you meet with? Who do you talk? How do you feel when you see people? And so I think for many of us in the conversation, in the kind of orbits and circles around ARC, we're people that say, look, the, the way that we think about how we read the world, the way that we imagine the world to be, an emphasis on play and creativity and um, like flexibility changes the ways that communities get built because people then become more adaptive and ready to kind of see the world as it is and then imagine the world as they want it to be. Yeah, it reminds me of what the Sufi teacher Kabir Haminsky calls the imaginal um, that I've heard a lot of other people in contemplative circles begin to use that idea of it's that space where um, where our imagination meets something that's bigger than us, like some that sort of uh, place of inspiration, and we can begin to interact with a reality that's not always totally tangible and, and begin to, to shape the embodied reality that we have as, as well. You know, we had an interview recently with um, a woman who is a witch, mm -hmm. and we kind of talked about how that's a number of things, but um, one of the things is how that's become really it seems to be really popular right now, especially amongst one young women to identify with with being a witch, you know, for uh, a lot of reasons. And, and one of the reasons being that there's a room for imagination and really believing that we can begin to, by engaging with our imagination, begin to affect the world that we live in in some ways. Like it opens us up to seeing new possibilities for things. And so I'm really, I'm really curious to hear more about the ways that you guys are doing that and what seems to be more of a traditional religious setting, um, I'm assuming, um, given that you are academics and working in theological education. I, I know for, for me kind of, this is a, a little outside of like the arc, but I, um, so I teach at a, at a university, but I also direct a youth theology institute. Mm -hmm. with, with high school juniors and seniors. And this is where I think I have seen this play out, this, you know, wanting to see more and go beyond. This is where I have seen it um, most clearly and vividly. And it has just been glorious, I, I promise you. Um, and <laughs> But it's just this sense of, you know, feeling like they they are in this box, yeah. right? That they're, they're just 
this is what they're told to do. This is what they're told to be. This is what they're told to believe. This is the extent to which, you know, you are limited to imagine more or to think beyond or to think outside of or to question God or to question anything for that matter. And so um, what I find is that when we come together for this kind of week of exploring how we live out our faith in this world and what that actually looks like and means, regardless of if you want to pastor or be an engineer or an artist, um, but to really think about that. And for them, it was this struggle of coming to this realization that they're enough. Mm-hmm. And for me, that that's beautiful because they had never been able to think past that. They had never been able to imagine or kind of, you know, I want to say ever, but kind of just in this space when they were telling me this, like this was kind of their first experience, um, being able to imagine something more for themselves, for their life, kind of for their being outside of this box that they've been kind of given or told to be in. Uh, and it's just really wonderful to be able to see how when you, and for us, because we do a lot of work, we do a lot of um, theater of the oppressed, Augusta Wall stuff, and allowing them to embody this work, allowing them to actually play, you know, a part or to reenact the part of a Mary or Jesus and to actually, you know, crawl on the floor, to actually respond, to do these things was the first time a lot of them felt embodied and empowered and had ever connected their body to scripture ever. Mm -hmm. And so it was just this beautiful, glorious thing that when we give them these kinds of tools, these imaginative tools, these you know, art and faith, when we kind of allow them to matter and to have these experiences, it can take us beyond. And we can imagine, just, it's just this beautiful space that I think a lot of people are thirsty for. Uh, and I think we need more spaces like that. And I know I, I get a chance to do that with youth, but I think we in art get a chance to do that as well at like our conferences and, and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm going to kind of loop around to the answer to kind of my engagement with that. So bear with me here. But when we talk about the arts sometimes or or aesthetics, I think sometimes people think about like, oh, they like paintings or spoken word or listening to freestyles by Black Thought. Like, you know, that's cool. But what's interesting is that what we say, and I and I don't even think just say, what we've experienced, and part of the reason I think people end up plugging into ARC in our conversations is if you take seriously the legitimacy of other forms of thinking as legitimate other forms of thinking, you will eventually have to confront the reality that the things you do are structured a certain way by the way that the world is. So when we talk about aesthetics or the arts, at the bottom of the like – rabbit hole that you go in when you take seriously arts and aesthetics is bodies. You have to pay attention to what gets counted as knowledge, what gets counted as legitimate, what gets counted as heretical or orthodox or whatever the tradition names it as. And so for us, that carries through into the classroom and theological education too. So in a lot of places, people will let you I don't know, write some poetry or or maybe paint something or do whatever as a reflection. But then if you really wanted to, quote, count, you sure as hell better after that write a real paper. So like all of the, the creative, imaginative kind of frame transgressing things are always first supplemental. And then to legitimize them, you do kind of German prose underneath them. And so... One of the things that a lot of us are engaged in is, yeah, we're in the academy and we're wondering, what does it look like for rigor not to mean 
uh, a certain way of thinking and being in the world, but for it to be about discipline and about practice and about revision and increasing your capacity and depth and focus. Because the reality is that theological education and religious education broadly and higher ed in general, a lot of it is under the sway of kind of white supremacy and misogyny. And we see that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got data now. I mean, this is one of my big like soapboxes. We now have data that says regardless of the content, regardless of the subject, regardless of the lecturer, the lecture disproportionately advantages white men. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that means if you're presuming that lecturing is, quote, just the way that you like to do it, what you're saying is you're OK with a kind of form of white supremacist misogyny and your preference for it doesn't matter to me. You're still supporting a system that, you know, is disproportionately giving an advantage to people who already have an advantage. So we start to ask questions like that, like what could we do to really rough up? the way that education looks, the way that higher ed looks? How can we engage people in a way that takes more seriously experiences and bodies? And and so, yeah, we're in the academy, a lot of us, but a lot of us are displeased with the way the academy functions because it it assumes that you want to be good at the things the academy wants you to be good at. And many mm-hmm. of us don't. <laughs> Is mm-hmm. that fair, Keisha? So fair. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm over here snapping. Yes, Callie. <laughs> I mean, what you're talking about sounds really revolutionary. I mean, like music of the people and and um, and ways of experiencing the divine that are not connected to like the theologies that come down from these like academic institutions. You know, I mean, that's like to put those on the same level. I mean, if if you could put it that way, feels so exciting and and like revolutionary to me. Yeah, and I'm wondering. And I don't know if I, I, I think I saw this somewhere when I was trying to read up a little bit on theopoetics, but is there some relationship between theopoetics and liberation theology? And maybe you could talk about that. And if not, like even just like the general relationship between theopoetics and like social justice. Yeah, this is actually a classic. This is like a object lesson proof in point, right? So in Christianity, at least, many people name Gustavo Gutierrez as like the father of liberation theology. Uh, three years before um, Gutierrez wrote his book, a, a Brazilian Presbyterian theologian named Ruben Alves wrote the first liberation theology book. But his editor was like, nah, 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 don't call it that. No one will read that thing. Change it to a theology of human hope. Oh, wow. So he changed his title. He changed the theological premise and wrote the first liberation theology book before Gutierrez did. And no one knows him. <laughs> Why? Well, because he didn't, he wasn't allowed to keep the word because someone who had structural power over him just made a decision for him. A wow. B he later realized that writing theology in the Academy wasn't the way to change minds. And he became a children's book author and a therapist. Oh, wow. And then C, um, he decided that he needed to talk about things in a way that wasn't great about citations. He's horrible to cite if you're trying to use him academically because he just says junk. And he could be he could be right. He could be like quoting Kant or Einstein or something he just made up. And you don't know. And he doesn't care because he's That's no so longer great. looking for clout. And he's passed away um, a few years ago now. But so Alves is kind of a touchstone for us. He's key for, I think, many of us. He's kind of one of the the fathers of liberation theology, but he 
kind of turned away from any of the kind of presumptive, like we've got the system figured out kind of thing, which, which in early liberation theology can sometimes be read that way. And he kind of went his own path. He's a Protestant, first of all. So he wasn't part of that kind of Catholic mix that was going on in, in South America. And I think the other reason it's really important is he was exiled. He was kicked out of Brazil. And so he was writing and thinking kind of um, in, in Babylon, you know, away from where he wanted to be. Mm. And I think a lot of us interact with justice that way is like we we strive for a world that's more just and more um good <laughs> but we mm-hmm. but we feel like we're living in a way in a world that's exiled from that place and so what kind of creative and imaginative practices can we do to kind of get us there um at least that that's how i think about it i mean i'm very much formed by by that brazilian stream and and my kind of main as an academic one of my main conversation partners is the work of paulo freire who is friends with alves so i'm very much a brazilian liberation flavored kind of thinker myself i think it's slightly it's the case for keisha too but i think there's different <laughs> flavors there also I, w- I was i was just gonna say i think i think the beauty of of, of arc and theopoetics is that um we, we like we're all kind of flavored or seasoned a little differently. So while I know there are some uh, liberation theology threads, like I'm a womanist scholar, so I'm I'm influenced by you know the the Alice Walkers, the Dolores Williams, the Katie Geneva Cannons, Bell Hooks. So, you know I'm like I am very influenced by by the as well as like the Mujerista scholars, you know uh, Ida Maria Acia Diaz. And so it's it's one of those things. It's like everyone has their kind of own different flavor that they can put on to it. And I think the beauty is that we we welcome that because it's like we know that with each voice that gets added, you know, we get to see, we get to push for for, for justice in new and different ways, right? So we, we want to push for that. We want to see these systems of oppression that are in place and be like, no, that's not okay. <laughs> and that's not what we're going to lift up here. And so having all these voices and, and having a space for all of us to kind of be has been has been great that, you know, Khaled and I can, can, can do this work, even if we are flavored and seasoned a little bit differently, um, but still kind of have the same push and pull that we really want to get to, to see what might happen in the world in the academy. So it's, yeah, so it's, it's quite unique. <laughs> so let me ask you both. I'm curious because, you know, one of the things Chelsea and I kind of had an intention for when we started this podcast was really to be speaking to people who maybe aren't traditionally religious. I think there's been so much data and talk about um, the rise of the nuns and the spiritual but not religious. And I think we both know from our own experiences and um, those of a lot of our friends and people in our cohorts that a lot of people just feel very disengaged from traditional religious spaces, that they're not meeting their their needs. Um, and I'm just curious, like for, for some of those people, because I think, you know, we're we're really intrigued by and curious about what you're doing. And part of my own personal um, desire and passion is to see people who are both part of the academy and part of what I call the ecclesiastical industrial complex um, be able to intermingle with and sort of connect with people who are outside of those systems as well, who are doing, who have deep spirituality that maybe isn't within those like sort of established systems and frameworks and see how we can speak to one another and um, learn from one another and collaborate with one another. And so I'm just wondering if maybe you can tell us more about like if if to somebody who maybe is is an activist who who is interested in spirituality, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who are looking for a deeper spirituality, um, who uh, want to be involved in the world some way, but like 
get like put off by the notion of academic theologians who are, you know, part of, or maybe even the words Christianity or, you know, whatever. What would you say to them? Like, do you, do you find yourself looking to reach out to those people or speak to them in any way? I, I don't know if I, if, if I seek to, to seek them out. Um, I think what happens, I, because I feel like by the nature of some of the work that we do, because I don't feel like we necessarily, and Callie, you can feel free to jump in, but I don't feel like we necessarily label ourselves as, um, oh, you need to, you know, have this or have that. I feel like we just kind of let it be kind of an open space where they can dance together, where, you know, maybe you want to do the tango. I'm going to cha-cha-cha over here, or I might want to swing, and, and that's okay. And and so, um, so I don't necessarily know if we necessarily go looking, but I think some tend to find us <laughs> um, just because it's more so like, oh, these are my people. Like you get, <laughs> you get what I'm trying to do, how I want to push kind of for injustice, how I want to see how they intertwine, but without having to say, oh, I need to adhere strictly to these particular methods of doctrine, um, you know, or, 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 or anything like that. So I think we, you know, kind of this kind of community aspect that we are really good with is we, you know, we network, we talk, well, I don't think we we adhere to any kind of strict uh, doctrine like that, that I think kind of tends to have people gravitate a bit to us. Cause it's usually after our conferences, it's kind of people are like, Hey, how can I be down? Like, how can I keep this going? How can I, you know, and it's just kind of, it has, it has that effect. I don't know. Would you, would you agree with that Khaled? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this goes back to, I, I can't remember who was saying it, Rebecca or, or Chelsea, but, but the idea that like in most kind of hierarchical religious traditions, and, and let's just be very frank that as far as I know, all the kind of strictly stringent uh, hierarchical religious traditions are, I think, run by men. Um, um, <laughs> part of what is happening, again, let's look at let's look at the form and the how of it, not just the what of it. Part of what's happening is people have been wounded and they're carrying trauma. Right. And so part of what. I mean, I'm 100% with Keisha. We're not like, look at this bright, shiny new thing that we can offer you. What we're saying is we also have issues with these structures because part of one of the things that power does when power needs to kind of uh, assert itself is it kind of insists on either a monologue or, or a unison chorus, right? So that right. If, if you sound wrong, then you get kicked out. And that's the case for people in general when they're kind of creatives or artists. Um, you know, a side note, uh, one of some of my academic research is in this kind of subfield of something called creativity studies. And there's really damning evidence about the likelihood of dropping out of high school as an incredibly positive correlation with the capacity of creativity and imagination in youth. Right. So all else equal, the more creative you are, the less likely you are to graduate high school. And that effect doubles in urban areas and areas of poverty. So our whole culture, whether it's religious or not, doesn't really always know what to do with folks who are kind of creative and imaginative. So those folks who either don't find a place in a religious home or explicitly are kind of told there's no place for them in there, but they still have a desire to be part of that world, sometimes find us because they're like, oh, you guys are okay with that. And in fact, you think that what we're doing um, – matters. And so it's not so much that we have an offer to them back into our own traditions. I mean, we, we each have our own 
ways of doing it. I'm a Quaker and my Quaker faith matters to me. And if you know anything about Quakerism, I sound like a Quaker. I swear more than most people do. But like, you know, theologically speaking, I am pretty clearly in that tradition. And Keisha's not and blah, blah, blah. all the kind of other people that are in our leadership and kind of do work in our events and are plugged into stuff. They all come from different perspectives. So it's not as if we represent a particular religious tradition. What we represent is a space that says, no, 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 you're okay the way you are. How you sound is fine. And let's figure out what we can do with that work the way that you want it to be. And that way, like our, our colleague Kate Common has this has this really great line. She says, uh, Theopoetics doesn't really offer anything new. There's nothing to it. <laughs> all, all it says is um, creative and imaginary ways of knowing, uh, imaginative ways of knowing are often marginalized when systems want to be in power. And everybody says that. Womanists say that. The liberation scholars say that. Feminist scholars say that. Queer scholars say that. Muharista. I mean, you go through the list of folks who have been disenfranchised by power, and everyone says at some point in time how people speak, how they communicate has been colonized. And if you want to kind of take power back, you know, let's open up the capacity for speaking and communicating in different ways. And so we all agree on that. And that's the things that brings us to the table. And then what people do with that, that's kind of up to them. I mean, we want to help equip people. And so that's one of the reasons the ARC exists is to let people introduce each other to one another. But like the the projects that people are on are 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 vast and 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 disparate. I'm curious about what, and I'm going to say, just preface this by saying, because I've been involved in a lot of um, sort of circles or groups where we were trying to do something specifically interspiritual that was open to anybody, regardless of where they were, kind of on a, on a theological spectrum or on a faith or spirituality spectrum, whatever you want to call it. And one of the things that I found was like a lot of times, because I have a Christian background um, naturally tended to gravitate towards other people who had some sort of connection to Christianity or Christian background. And a lot of times what was happening was that we were getting together and we were kind of self-selecting into groups where there was like a heavy Christian influence and saying, oh, we're really interspiritual. But if you had people who really had no connection to Christianity coming in, occasionally you'd have someone who would say, oh, I really resonate with what you're doing. But there were a lot of people who would come in sometimes and say, well, this is supposed to be interspiritual, but it still feels really Christian to me by by virtue of the fact that that's just your natural language that you use. And that's like the practices that you you tend to sort of embody always kind of have that flavor. And that's not necessarily wrong or bad. But one of the things I realized was like needing to like really get clarity um, around being honest about saying like, so I, I said this to somebody who I was working with recently saying like, look, I know we want to be interspiritual, but we need to be acknowledged that the fact that all of us come from a Christian background and that's going to flavor what we do. And we can maybe say um, like, you know, we worked on how we we started to language that, like language communicating both our intention as well as the, the honest reality of where we where we were coming from. And so I'm just curious about what is the sort of as far as ARC is concerned, what is the commonality there and, and what's the, do you guys see yourselves as having a Christian identity? Because it seems to me that most of the people that are involved have that sort of connection to something. Um, is it something you're trying to move away from? Um, is it something that you really want to embrace and say like, yes, this is, this is where we're coming from? Uh, um, yeah, I'm just, curi- I'm just curious about what that looks like for you guys. 
so I would I would say I think several of our our board might identify as as Christian in in one way or another, but that is by no means kind of where where we're hoping to stay at. We are yeah. we want we embrace all faiths, um, all religions, all all of those practices or non. Um, we embrace all of that. Um, that's something that we are very uh, intentional about. You know, when we're thinking about you know board selection and things like that, we're trying to be very intentional about okay. Let's bring in some other religions. Let's bring in so like those are things that um that really matter to us because we don't think that you know when we're talking about you know the the things that we're we're talking about around imagination and experience and body you know all bodies matter <laughs> you know what yeah. like all yeah. all all of all of that matters in 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 our spaces you know one of our big things is that art and faith matter right your body matters your experience matters um and that doesn't change if you know my religion is different from yours if anything we. We expand the space. We expand the conversation. We, you know, it, it brings more into into the space. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Do you want to add anything to that, Khaled? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, that that piece, Rebecca, um, kind of your your story there, very much uh, is something that I think we resonate with. And the underlying word for that is Christian supremacy. Yeah. That, yeah. that we live in a culture, <laughs> regardless of what yep. the conservatives think, who feel as if Christians are under attack, uh, which is just like a laughable premise to me. <laughs> you mean they aren't? <laughs> um, I mean, Starbucks had a blue cup oh, this no, year. That's right. So there you go, Jews. Be happy. Um, yeah. um, no, but I mean, so we live we live in a, we live in a culture that is kind of Christian dominance and. As any good, you know, community organizer will tell you that um, power unaddressed is power abused. And so if we don't, it's not like do you acknowledge it or not. But if you don't acknowledge that you, there's, a, there's a kind of Christian dominance forming your worldview, then you're then you're kind of leaning into your privilege and saying, I'd rather not pay attention to it. And and we we're obnoxiously <laughs> aware of when you start asking how questions, when you start asking aesthetic questions and not just in a like, oh, look at that, Buffy. It seems like that was his blue period. When you start really talking about what you perceive, what you experience, what your body goes through, right? Those are the questions of aesthetics. And you start applying those questions to organizations and not just texts or paintings. Suddenly you start looking around you and going, huh, we all think a kind of way. We all imagine the world a kind of way. And that shapes us. And so it's not so much bad or good, right? Like I'm a white dude, right? So I don't think that white dudes are evil, but I sure as heck have different responsibilities because of my whiteness and my dudeness. Yeah. And mm -hmm. if I don't live into those responsibilities, then I, there is an issue. But just because I have more responsibilities to take care of things doesn't make me evil. It just means I have things I got to take care of. Similarly, organizationally, I think there's an equivalent thing. Do you know where you're at? Do you know where you're headed? Do you know where you want to go? Are you willing to be honest about it? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think that's where exactly. we're at. And I honestly think that's one of the struggles with lots of organizations, us included, is it's hard to say where you're at because you want to imagine a fluffy luff place where everyone's welcome and the table's there. And that's part of the way mm -hmm. that Christian domination and white supremacy function is you just say all the words, you say everyone's invited to the table, and then when people don't show up, you're like, well, they were welcome. That's on them. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I think it's really important to name that stuff. And, you know, like, mm -hmm. 
it's kind of obnoxious, but like if you go to our website, uh, you know, artsreligionculture.org and you go to click on like the definition of like what we are in like big block letters on the top of the page. It says, just so everyone knows, this is way whiter and way Christianer than we would like, but this is what we got for right now. <laughs> and I think a lot of organizations <laughs> would not put that on the top of a page. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, if we absolutely. can't, then what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you have that transparency because I think it's so important. Like we have to... I think a lot of times with organizations and, and with people, you know, whatever you're doing, you want to put this like happy, shiny face on it mm-hmm. and not sort of like be honest about like, yeah, this is like these are like the difficult points. And we just really want to be honest and invite people into helping us work through that because, you know, we kind of we need other people with other perspectives to sort of challenge us or, you know, expand our imaginations. Mm-hmm. It takes a certain humility. Absolutely. And and I think with us, the reason why we're so obnoxiously intentional and trying <laughs> is because for many of us, it's, you know, our, our communities, you know, th- those are our communities, our Christian communities. So even when we're trying to reach out, if those are our communities, it's, it still becomes difficult um, to reach outside of those communities, right? To reach other communities, to, to, to widen our scope. And, and I think Cal just, uh, he, he just always says it so beautifully. And just, it just makes me so happy because I'm like, oh, he's one of my favorite white dudes. And so, <laughs> uh, well, because, you know, he, he, he says the thing. And so I love it, but it's, 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 it's hard work. And we have to start first with being able to name it. And that is one thing that we have always been very intentional about organizationally is of naming, hey, this is where we are. Hey, we have a whiteboard. There are a lot of men or that, you know, we, we have no problem naming that and, and holding each other accountable um, when we when we don't see right being able to, to name that. And so I think that's also one of our um, our big strengths is that even though we know we might not be exactly where we want to be at the moment, we we are imagining, but we're also holding each other accountable and keeping those conversations in the forefront. You know, every time we talk and meet, that is one thing we are constantly obnoxiously talking about. So um, so yeah, no, I just, I, I think it's really important. So I'd like to do like a two pronged little t- stories that's directly related to that. One is, um, a colleague of ours, Tim Jones wrote a review of a book for our journal and it was a book on preaching. He's a, he's a, a preacher, a homiletician and, uh, an African-American preacher in the black ch- church tradition. And so he reviewed this book that was about preaching and theopoetics. And he very, very generously um, closes his review with, um, I'm thrilled to hear that such and such an author um, is recognizing the importance of bodies and of creativity, improvisation, and um, that it's not just the content, but the genre and the poetic nature of it. Um, Side note, blacks have always been doing this, but good job. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Right? And so, but he really meant that. He really said, good job, white Canadian. Like you, you're doing a good thing. And he really did mean it. What, what he was careful to say though, is don't get thinking he invented this. So the the right. second thing, yeah. which is related is I was in a conversation recently with someone who's a tantrika yoga practitioner about some of these same kinds of things. And he said, you do you know why this is a Christian conversation? And I said, uh, 
I'm not sure exactly. He says, because you are the ones who need this reparation. You are the ones who have had Mm -hmm, such a problem with art and bodies to begin with. So you need to come up with a word to say this isn't a problem because the rest of us never had this problem. (laughs) So I think there's a way in which, you know, we're really sensitive to the fact to say, oh, well, uh, you know, people who study Abhinabhagupta or, you know, Sri Shankara, they're doing theopoetics. That can just be a (laughs) colonial gesture to say we like this Mm -hmm. Indian yogic thought and we're going to call it this thing so that our uh, medicine, our healing that we need as Christians to kind of overcome a kind of mind-body dualism, we need our word on you. And and that's a colonial gesture that, like, you know, we're not really super down with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I think those stories are, are resonant. The thing around the, the, the theopoetics of preaching and the kind of the difference between traditions is, is, is something that we shouldn't let we shouldn't let pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like you're really holding space for these conversations. And um, and I wonder if you might want to tell us a little bit about your upcoming conference um, as one of those ways in which you're continuing this conversation, inviting people to that conversation. Absolutely. We would absolutely love to do that. We'd love to have you. <laughs> uh, so um, so we have our Theopoetics Conference, and uh, I love the, for me personally, I love our little tagline kind of that we have there. It's a, a space for thinkers, doers, and makers. So it's really light along the lines of what you um, were talking about. And so uh, we're super excited in this um well, I guess coming up in 2018, it'll be, it's just outside of Boston and it's, um, uh, starts Friday, March 9th, uh, until Saturday, March 10th. Um, and it's just this kind of amazing thing. And we have people from, we have poets, we have rappers, we have preachers, we have professors, we have clergy, we have music, we have Petra Kuchas, we have, Podcast you know, hosts. exactly, we, exactly. <laughs> there you go. And so we have a little bit of kind of just everyone there and you can see who I was attending kind of on our, on our website, but we just believe in you know, supporting folks that are using these artistic and spiritual practices actually to work towards justice and flourishing, right? So we we want to have this space where we're actually doing these things, where we're talking about process and form, where we don't just say, hey, I'm going to give you, you know, I'm going to do a cipher, but I'm gonna, let me tell you what went into it. Like, what, you know, and so it's kind of this, the conversation and the engagement and kind of what we were talking about, Khaled was mentioning a lot about our, co- like networking and connecting and, you know, collaborating together and, um just having these like mix of voices and methods and perspectives uh, and bodies and aesthetics. And it's just, oh, it's, it's amazing. So, I mean, it's one of those uh, you look forward to and I'm super excited about it. <laughs> so if I can, if I can like uh, blow our own trumpet. Uh, Please do. <laughs> if, if you go to theopoeticsconference.org, this is one of the like super nerdiest things that I get excited about in terms of like our deal. Yes. If you go and click on who's coming, you see everyone who's coming and you see everyone's face and everyone's bio. And the point of that, I mean, again, part of what you're hearing with us is kind of the the medium is the message kind of thing, the the kind of Marshall McLuhan idea. And so rather than saying, oh, let's pay $5,000 for like this big, important speaker to come and talk to us and everyone's coming because they want to hear, I don't know, whoever big, important speaker is, um, Oprah. Oprah. Yeah, yeah. Then they'll come and then they'll like all be circled around this person and then that's the draw. What we do instead is say, when you say you're coming, you're part of the reason that other people are coming. And so everyone shares their bio. Everyone shares their headshot because the conference is the people that make it up. 
And so mm-hmm. what happens is as more and more people come, we figure out what the theme of the conference is because we don't really know until people show up. So we're going to have 20 different workshops or presentations or performances or dialogue circles across the span of, you know, a day and a half ish. And, um, at the end of the time, we'll say, so what happened here? And on Sunday morning, it's uh, technically after the conference is over, but anyone who wants to stick around and have brunch, we process. What happened? What do you want to follow up on? Who did you meet? How can we help you do that thing? Who else should have been part of the conversation who wasn't? And like that processing self-reflective piece with all of those faces is built into what we're doing because we're trying to figure out how to equip and catalyze cool stuff and not just kind of bring people around to listen to, I don't know, Brian McLaren or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's really like that emergent uh the emergent spirituality or the emergent ideas, you know, the things that really came up through the conference. It sounds so exciting. And everyone gets to be a part of that. It's really a co-creative process, it sounds like. Yeah. And and also I know I know I don't I think Khaled might jump in on this one, but we we have this awesome award that we that we get to give out and we we love being able to do this and bring someone in. Um Cal was talking earlier about Ruben Alves, who is kind of you know the father of some of some of this work. Um and so we uh, actually have a, an award named after him that is able to bring in a person that kind of applies and we bring in, we pay for them to travel room and board. We give them honorarium and for them to be able to experience this. Right. And so it's, it's that important to us. We're like, no, we need to, there are some people that can't afford to be there and we want you to get here to, to be here for like the conversations that are going to happen. The people that are going to be in this space, as Khaled was saying, they, they make up what this is. And so um, we're just really excited about the things that we've been able to do and, cultivate and it's just really exciting. Lakeisha, I'm wondering if maybe you might have like a story or something from conferences past that maybe um, encapsulate sort of like what's really great about what you guys are doing or what's really great about that space that you're creating. Oh my goodness. I feel like Khaled has a much better story about <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh, well, no, it's a story. I, I feel like I can't tell it well as he is, but it's, uh, Khaled, you can have to tell the story about the guy that was talking about you being a white dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh god it's such the a good story one, but no no the good one that was like this is the space oh there's and, a horrible one in the good oh one. i mean you all you, you have all the kinds of stories but it was like a story well, that i'll tell the horrible go ahead one. this is hey hey editor <laughs> feel free to edit this out yeah <laughs> but it is a funny story i don't know if this is the story but in our first year you know towards the evening of that of the first full day um someone came up to me. And again, this is just indicative, right? They come up to me, even though a team ran it to talk to me about the thing. Cause I'm the white guy. Right. So I clearly have to be in charge of everything. <laughs> uh, anyway. So this person who was also a white male or, or presented that way in, I'll say late sixties, early seventies said, and this is kind of like a classic liberal big L move. This has been amazing um, I've never been in a th- place like this before. It's so diverse. And I said, yeah, it turns out when you allow people to be who they are um, <laughs> and you and you value what they're bringing, <laughs> lots of people like that. And then he said to me, how did you get them all here? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I said, what's that? He's like, come, c- come again. And he said, I mean, how did you get? 
so much diversity here, which is, first of all, folks, don't ever say that because diversity isn't a thing that arrives. So that's like your little it's a little learning. People <laughs> yes. are who they are. Yeah. And it's your issue if you don't know mm-hmm. money people. And I said, I said, um, oh, I use the brown people app. as a joke kind of trying to point back at him like that's it it doesn't just happen and he was like what and i said never mind they're my friends (laughs) how do people come to things because you know them because you Mm. value them because you have real real relationships with them not the mentality that says how do you get them here right Mm -hmm. and so i think and, and that's just like a race issue, but but that's really at the end of the day, like that's the 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 thing that that guy was feeling was a real thing. What it was is mm-hmm. people being valued and lifted up, and their wisdom being authorized by nothing other than themselves. They don't need to underwrite it with German prose. They bring their own power Mm -hmm. and wisdom as a result of all they've lived through and all the crazy junk you have to deal with living in this world as anybody. We're living in a world where kind of dominating structures change everyone. And that includes dudes because toxic masculinity is a real thing. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So so yeah. part of what we're saying is like, let's own up to that stuff. Let's make a space where people can kind of gather and, uh, and name that stuff, lament it, lament it honestly and loudly, make a space for some rage and some joy. And so the issue is not that he was wrong, but that we'll go back to the imagination. He couldn't conceive of it outside of any structure that didn't commodify those people who represented diversity for him. Right. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is is kind of trying to figure out how to build a space that we can really be together. And Keisha's bio is like the coolest bio in the world, because one of the things she says in it is how do we learn (laughs) to really see each other? To not mm-hmm. just see each other in terms mm-hmm. of the value or the commodity that you bring to us, but to really see it. And, um, you know, to go back to that Alves mm-hmm. piece, um, you know, the, the Alves award, we, we kind of give out to folks who help that. Right. So it doesn't they don't need to be a Christian at the end of his life. He wasn't a Christian either. Um, it's people who do work in a community that values bodies, that values the arts and helps build up people's capacity to really see one another. And when people do that, we want to acknowledge them with this Alva's Award. So you out there listening, if you're under 40 ish or flexible there um, <laughs> and or know someone who does like real powerful community work that values the arts, that values bodies, and that kind of helps um, people wake up a little, um, then we want to acknowledge the importance of that because that's kind of central to our our vision. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, the other piece of what we're able to do this year through the um, through the support of an organization called the Forum for Theological Exploration is we have uh, the funds to cover registration and room and board for um, six young adults who want to come, um, wow. who are interested wow. in the arts and spiritual leadership, but don't quite know how that fits. So we can bring six people to the conference and cover all their costs except for travel. And all that's on the website too, the the young, uh, young adult scholarship. So we're trying to really build up kind of societal and organizational capacities to have this kind of work happen, not just like once a year at our events, but back in communities mm-hmm. and then supporting people there to help them do what they want to do. That's so great. If I can just throw, just throw this last little thing about what happened at that conference. Um, and 
Because I don't feel like, I don't want people to feel like they have to come and like know all of this stuff or have it all together or be on their Mm -hmm. P's and Q's. Like we're all figuring it out. And so wherever you find yourself there, come and we're going to be a community that supports you, but also holds you accountable. Um, And, you know, I remember as in a session and I think, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly, I can't remember what the guy said, but I think it's something very sexist. And uh, one of the the folks in the, in the room, which kind of in the audience is kind of, you know, well, hey, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about what this comment was and what it did. You know what I mean? And so it wasn't like a in a negative way. It wasn't in a, you know, I'm gonna bash it. It was like, hey, here's a really good moment where we can all like learn and have some conversation around. And we did. And we had some genuine conversation. And the guy left, like, oh, I didn't even realize. And like now, thank you for 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 bringing that up. And that's kind of the the community that we're talking about. We're not trying to bash anyone. We all know that we're we're all some of us are further along, you know, on the scale than others of, of being aware, or as, you know, my folks like to say woke. And so, uh, you know, we're all on that different spectrum or scale and just know that we, we know that we get that. And we're here to be a community together, which means we're going to call each other out in, in great ways um, and, and great opportunities of learning, but also support each other really well. So I just think that's also something really unique about that we do as well. Hmm. Yeah. And like this year, for example, kind of directly related to that, one of the things that you'll get when you come to the conference is this uh, document or the this this tool that we've been working on that is like a series of questions and practices to help people reground, remind themselves of their embodiment and concretize thinking. So sometimes you can end up talking in such an abstract way. You're not actually pointed at anything real anymore. You're just existing in kind of a theoretical way. And it's well and good mm-hmm. for people to say, yeah, yeah, we don't like that. But then how do you get back? Right. So, you don't attack people for doing it. And so we've been kind of thinking about some of the ways in which certain kinds of questions and certain kinds of questions can help us all come back to our bodies, all come back to the way that we're realizing that we're talking in a certain way because we've learned a certain way of talking. And that's not the same thing as like, that's definitely true forever, ever, ever, all, all, all time, time, time. <laughs> so, uh, so again, I think that's a really big thing that Keisha just said is it's not just like only show up if you're woke as fuck, you know, like, uh, 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 sorry, uh, probably you might want to edit that. Sorry, I totally forget that I'm talking to like lots of people. Uh, but 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 really, it's like if you care about these things, know that there's stuff to learn. And, I mean, the only way that we figure it out is if we are, are able to be vulnerable enough with one another that people call us out mm-hmm. on our stuff and we learn to really grow. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm-hmm. we're trying yeah. to figure out how yeah. to equip people to do that. And people come in at all different levels and from different levels of commitment and for different purposes. And we're trying to kind of build a set of tools and, and a community, which is a kind of tool to allow people to explore, gain additional tools and then build relationships that kind of forward this thing so that we can all survive and thrive. That's our thing. Artistic and spiritual practice is braided together for the flourishing mm. of the world. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to snap. Gosh, it's mm-hmm. so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's Thank beautiful. You. Really. Okay. Well, I think we're getting to the end of our time. We like to end our podcast by asking for recommendations, um, by asking the question, what is nourishing you right now? So, Lakeisha, I'd like to ask you, what's nourishing you right now? I was originally going to say the Starburst that I've secretly been been <laughs> been munching on for a while, but actually, um, I actually been like as we've been doing this, I've been kind of looking out the window, but also just kind of all day today. I've been outside; it wasn't too cold, and I am just really inspired today just by just by animals today. 
and mm. they have just just seeing them mm. do their thing and live this you know wonderful life and scurrying around and just kind of being in community and getting it I'm just I'm just that's nourishing me today a lot because I'm like mm. I wish you know I, I want to be like that I want to be scurrying and be free so um mm-hmm. yeah can I just ask, where do you live that you're looking out the window and seeing all these animals? Oh, I mean, not like a whole lot of, th- I mean, I'm not like, I'm not saying lions and, <laughs> not lions and tigers and bears. I'm in Virginia. So I'm seeing like birds and squirrels. <laughs> yeah. So no, not, not a whole, and you know, like neighbor's dogs are walking by that are really, really adorable. So I mean, yeah. those kinds of animals, you okay. know, I'm not out in the woods anywhere. No, no, no. Um. I was picturing you like in a cabin, like cozy in the mountains or something. And there's like bobcats yeah. and stuff. <laughs> You know the- yeah, she's actually been recording this whole podcast from a herd of goats. <laughs> Basically, I mean, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, hey, hey, Khaled, what about you? You got some animals? You uh, are animals nourishing you too, or no, no, I loathe animals. Um, uh, two things I would say. One is um, Hari Kondabolu, who's a, a stand-up, has been killing it. Um, I think he's one of those folks who totally understands like how important uh, kind of laughter and art is for changing minds. But he also doesn't take himself so seriously that he thinks that he's a replacement for journalists. Mm. (laughs) Right. So like he does a lot of social satire Mm. and is funny as heck is great, a great joke writer and performer and like really gets people going on. But like then when he starts to get interviewed by like journalists or like official political people, he's like, guys, I'm a stand up. Like, you know, and I think he points then people back to real journalists, to real fact finders. And that that uh, blending together, together of someone who really uses the world and helps people move towards justice, but also recognizes that kind of artists have a part in that, but they're not a replacement for kind of uh, the other kinds of things that make information and knowledge. That's really cool. He, he's He's been rocking it. And then the other thing is um, lately, like in the past week, um, my daughter, um, who is seven and is just about ready to kind of launch into her ability to read whatever novel she wants when she wants it and is really imagining the world, right? That, that ability to read and like enter into those worlds and, and then process it, you know, because we're reading a lot of uh, like fantasy novels and things where magic is in them. And a lot of those are very like kind of white imaginary places. And so it's both exciting to talk about fairies and wizards. And also we then talk about like, what do you think is going on in there? And how come there's only this people? And how come they're only friends with these people? And it's a both and like, I love being able to hand on what I read and came up on, but also being able to say, you know, seven is not too young to start asking these questions and we can both enjoy the thing we enjoy and recognize it another way would might be better Hmm. that's awesome being a dad is cool yeah yeah (laughs) what about you chelsea what's nourishing you right now um i heard this song i i went to a potluck last week which first of all was really fun and nourishing because i tend to host potlucks and that's super nourishing but it's really fun to also just like go and be part of one not have to like clean up afterward um and I had never met this community before. I knew one person at the potluck and, um, and her housemate or two of her housemates actually sing together. And one of them sang this amazing song called national anthem. It's like an alternative national anthem. And so not only did I get to hear this beautiful song, but I heard it in person from the person who 
wrote this song and I just highly recommend listening to this song. It really, um, invites in many experiences in this country. Like I, I want to read just a couple of the, Oh, well, I guess I closed it anyway. I'm not going to read the lyrics because I think it'll be more powerful to listen to the song. So the artist's name is Jean Rowe, and uh, it's called National Anthem, Arise, Arise. Mm. And we'll include the link to that in our show notes. And Rebecca, what about you? Um, so, you know, it's funny. Just earlier today, I was reading an article that somebody posted on Facebook about Reese Witherspoon, and I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, and it was about how she uh, has started a production company essentially to write really like develop um, roles and movies that feature women in really interesting and complicated roles. And she kind of talks about how like when everything kind of transitioned to the internet, like um, as far as the way people watch and consume media and uh, the studio started losing the money that they used to earn on DVD sales they started eliminating the categories of pictures that were basically like sub blockbuster level, like those kind of like profitable but smaller pictures um, that usually were the ones where that featured women and that were, I think, even traditionally called like women's pictures and things like that. Um, and those roles started getting eliminated. And she started like wondering, why am I only being offered these like really crappy roles that are like only showcase women in like the worst possible light? <laughs> And so she started, she created a production company to really develop new roles and um, started optioning like books that women were writing to to create movies around them. So she did like Wild with Cheryl Strayed. And I think her production co- company is involved in the, the new production of uh, Wrinkle in Time that she's starring in that's being directed by Ava DuVernay. And uh, there was something in there. She was just this, this woman who is... Was just, it's just like very aware of her own competence and her own ambition and kind of like unapologetic about it and was just, you know, saw a need for something and said, I'm going to fill it and I'm going to do it that I was really inspired by. I was I don't it was just like I don't know why it spoke to me this morning about, um, yeah, seeing this, seeing her say she's like, you know, I'm just done apologizing for uh, the fact that actually I'm good at some things and I, I can do them well and I'm happy about that. You know? That's awesome. Um, so yeah. Strong women rock. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So yeah, thank you so much, Khaled and Lakeisha for being here. Yeah, um, thank you. And we will continue to be telling our viewers or our listeners, I should say, <laughs> um, about the conference coming up and inviting them to be a part of it. And so, Yeah. Fabulous. Thanks for having us. It's Thank been great. you. Thank you. And uh, the Risingites, if there's a little uh, coupon code if you want 10% off. So um, yes. awesome. your l- wonderful hosts will drop that information. But we would love to see you. And using that lets us know that you come from them. So that would be super rad. Yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on The Rising. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much for having us. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising. The Rising.